You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. 1 Timothy 5, starting in verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. Having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, Let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. The word of the Lord to us this morning. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the privilege to come and to hear your word preached. And we ask, Father, that your spirit would be um, free to move. We ask, Father, that you would remove any restrictions, any barriers, that would prohibit or inhibit us from hearing from your Spirit as he preaches to us. I pray, Father, that you would take the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth, and that you would cause them to be your words. I pray, Father, that you would come, cast the vision, teach us, instruct us on what it means to live like the family of the living God. In Jesus' name. Everybody said? This is an uh, interesting text to preach. I admit this is one of the, my loves and joys of expositional preaching, which is just picking up at the beginning of one book and preaching your way through it. I don't know that this is a text that I would turn to often normally on my own for personal instruction. Um, probably not one that I would typically land on and say, I think I want to preach that passage on a Sunday morning. Um, maybe stage of life, um, maybe circumstances of life, wouldn't be one that I would normally connect with. 
Um, so I always sense a challenge there whenever I sense something like that about a passage, and this passage is one of those, and I am, I am thankful for God's goodness in, um, in what he teaches us in texts that maybe I wouldn't normally land on. Um, this has been a good study for me. I pray that this is good for you this morning. I pray that the Spirit would speak to you through this passage. I'm going to start us here. I want you to think about this thought. I want you to think about this truth that there is no such thing as lower class, middle class, or upper class in the church family. Okay? No such thing. There is no such thing as classes in the church family, period, right? There's only one kind of a class of person in the church family. And that's, that's the class of a person who is a sinner turned saint. That's the class. Many different variety, various ways of describing it. We're, we're the class of people who are sinners turned saint. We're the class of people who have been redeemed from the pit, right? We're, we're, we're the kind of class of people that once were lost but now are found. This is the kind of class of people that you see in the church. We once were orphaned by sin, but now we are set free and adopted by the Savior. This is the kind of class of people that we are if you are part of the church, the family of the living God. If you are a Christ follower, if you've been saved, this is the kind of class of person you are. There's no such thing as a second-rate citizen in the church family. And on the flip side, there's also no such thing as citizens with special privileges. The world that we live in, however, um, constructs classes within society. Okay? Uh, the world that we live in finds ways to marginalize the less fortunate, the more needy, while giving special privileges uh, to the quote-unquote more important or more elite. Um, I think that this recognition, uh, and obviously I think you could argue nuances of all those things. I'm making some blanket statements because I want to make a different case um, here in a few moments. So I just want to make us head the, in the right direction. I think that this recognition that the world around us does this, therefore we could be in danger of doing that. I think it's important for us uh, as members of the church family. Why? Because I think it helps us to see the importance of actually being the church family in the midst of a broken society. So really that's the point I'm trying to make is the society around us is broken and we get the opportunity to be the church family in the midst of that. Um, tease this out a little bit more. I don't think it's um, a, a big revelation for us to acknowledge that the family unit, the family is broken because of sin, right? Broken. Um, if you think about it this way, like divorce rates are an all-time high, okay? Um, they don't seem to be going down. Uh, teen pregnancy, um, single-parent homes, these things are on the rise. They're not, there's, they're not, the, the tide's not being turned back in those categories. Um, our prison systems, uh, flawed, um, <laughs> overflowing as well. Um, our health care, our social systems, um, I like to think of these like band-aids on a disease that is much deeper than those systems are equipped to handle. I'm not even going to dive into politics, uh, educational systems, homelessness, poverty. The list goes on, right? I think all these things that we talk about in society, all these systems that we see, all these things, they flow out of something called the family. 
and the family is broken, therefore all of those other systems are broken. Um, my point in all this uh, is that the family system is broken at its core. Repeat myself. And I think that realization, that realization isn't something to just become nitpicky about. I think it becomes like an invitation. It was an invitation for us uh, to be the church family in the midst of a broken society. So, um, so now with that kind of category built in our minds, I want you to think about the church family in Ephesus. Timothy, pastor of the church in Ephesus, Paul's writing to him. So if you think about the church family that's there and what we've kind of learned over the last few months as we've studied this book, I, I, think, I think you might see or might agree that the Ephesian church is trying to live out this vision of, uh, of being a healthy and godly church family. Um, but obviously the Ephesian church had some issues to work on. Agreed? I mean, we've got issues to work on. They did too. Anytime you get a church family together, you've got a bunch of imperfect people. So if you think you found the perfect church, you'll probably leave now because you're going to jack it up, right? Um, so they weren't perfect in Ephesus. Um, not an excuse to stay there, right? Not going to do that. But uh, probably good just to think about some of the things that you see in the church family in Ephesus. If we were to do a quick survey of where we've been, um, here's the way you might, you might remember it. Um, back in chapter 1, when we first started, we, we learned that some of the church leaders in the church family had gone off their rails, right? They were teaching stuff that nobody should ever teach, and Timothy needed to go do something about that. Um, in chapter 2, uh, I think we, as we worked our way through that, we kind of learned that in, in the Ephesian church family, their worship gatherings needed to refocus on the gospel. Um, as we uh, made our way through chapter 2, we, we learned uh, that the men and the women in the church family at Ephesus, they needed to learn to act like men and women, right? The men needed to be men, and the women needed to be women, and they needed to start acting like it. And so uh, Paul tells Timothy to deal with that. Um, once we got into chapter 3, we began to survey uh, the fact that um, their leaders needed to become qualified, needed to be qualified. It seemed apparent that there were some unqualified leaders, and so Paul kind of lays out all the qualifications for elders and deacons. Um, and then as we dove into chapter 4, I think uh, Joe preached the first uh, five, the other Joe, not this Joe, preached the first five verses and uh, really instructed us and taught us that the Ephesian church family, much like us, oftentimes, need to return to our first love of the gospel, need to know it and protect it, right? Um, and then as we began to make our way through chapter 4, um, we, uh, we learned that uh, the, the Ephesian church family needed to um, institute or return to um, a regimen of a, of a more healthy spiritual diet, more healthy spiritual exercise. I think we were really challenged that week not to eat spiritual junk food. And then uh, towards the end of chapter 4, last week, uh, we learned that the Ephesian church family needed to keep a very close watch on themselves, right? And it was explicitly spoken to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself as you lead. But by way of implication for every believer, we need to keep a close watch on our hearts, our souls, and our minds. Why? 
so that we don't waver off the pathway of gospel growth onto like the highway of cultural destruction. We've learned these things. There was a lot of stuff going on in the Ephesian church family. So very applicable to us today as you're here gathered with the church. And really, in the midst of all that, if you just kind of want to try to take all that instruction so far, <coughs> all that uh, information on the church family in Ephesus, you wanted to boil it down to like one central thread. It was like one thing that Paul has said that I just want to hang my hat on. What would it be? think, I think it would be Ephesians, or not Ephesians, 1 Timothy 3, 15 through 16. Paul instructs Timothy to instruct the Ephesian church family on how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Because apparently it's not buttress, although in England that's the way they would say it. Okay, whatever. <clears throat> this would be the central coat hook of, of everything that Paul has said. He'd be hanging all of that on there. In other words, what Paul is uh, charging Timothy with is he's saying, hey, instruct the church family how you should live and how you should behave. And I want you to live and behave like the family of the living God. The question for us is what does that mean? What does it mean to live and to behave like family members. So I've entitled our message today just that, like family members. And if you're like me, um, you likely came from a family that didn't do this all that well. Um, there might have been some good and healthy things you learned from your family of origin growing up, maybe, right? You got some good tools in your bag. Um, but most likely, uh, you and I both have some really bad things in that bag that we like to pull out as well, right? And so there's good transformation that can still take place inside of each of us. Um, and so as we look at this text, we want to be asking that question, like, how, how does this passage, how does God want to speak to me about what it means to live and to behave like a family member? Um, now, before we dive into answering that question, I do want to... Um, just note something really important. You look at this passage I just read. This passage focuses heavily, I would say almost exclusively, aside from the first three verses, and it focuses exclusively on how to relate to widows in the church family. Uh, for some of you, that may be easy, or you may be tempted to dismiss or check out. Um, can I just tell you how disobedient and rebellious that would be for us? I'm saying how it is. Let me be disobedient and rebellious because this is God's word to us this morning. So don't check out and don't dismiss because you miss what I think God would want to say to us. Okay? So let's take a look at this. Um, what does God's word say about living together like the blood-bought family members that we really are? Number one, number one, we're called to encourage one another like family members, called to encourage one another. You think about Timothy as a pastor at the church in Ephesus. I think dude definitely had his hands full um, with the church. Um, he was a timid young man. Uh, if you do study of Timothy and who he is, very timid, didn't like confrontation, but he needed to confront false teachers, right? He needed to confront disqualified leaders. He needed to confront men and women who were enamored with secondary and even heretical 
teachings. He needed to confront people who were losing their love for the gospel. He also needed to confront people who were picking out on spiritual junk food. I put yourself in Timothy's shoes. That's a tough act to go with. Don't forget also, we just studied this either last week or the week before, that there were most likely some, some folks in the church who looked down on him for his young age because Paul tells them, hey, don't let anybody look down on you for that. Don't let anybody come after you for that. Look down on him for his young age. Which, as I was thinking about that again, reminds me, when somebody needs you to come confront them, when somebody needs you to come help them, um, here's, here's the way that you get dismissed really easily. Ah, you're either too young, too old, too fat, too skinny, too inexperienced, too overexperienced. Um, all sorts of ways that we dismiss um, people. And in Timothy's case, it was that he was young. So how would Timothy approach all these different people without treating them like enemies or without running from the responsibility in the first place? How would he approach these people in such a way that would actually show that he cares for them? Paul's answer in the first three verses is, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So this is simple and straight. Not a lot of nuance to it. Like, don't have to like, look underneath a lot of rocks to figure out what Paul is saying. Simply telling Timothy, hey, you need to encourage people like family members, right? So if you kind of think about this for a minute, if you've got to go correct your father um, or rebuke your father because he's done something wrong, I mean, think about this. This is the... This is a man who changed your diapers. This is the man who spoon-fed you as a baby. This is the man who lost hour after hour of sleep over you when you would lie awake screaming at night. This is the dude who's going to attend your school events, going to spend lots of money on you. If that's the man, and even if you didn't have that man as a kid, Paul's laying this out. Think of that older man like this man. How would you approach him? I think you'd probably want to approach him with humbleness, encouragement, politely, respectfully. I would suspect then, as Paul's saying, you'd want to do the same thing with an older woman too, right? Older woman, approach her like your mom because she went through all the pain, the labor of bringing you into this world, right? For lots of moms say, I went through the pain and labor of bringing you and I could certainly take you out. Disrespect me. I think you want to approach an older man or an older woman like they're your mom or your dad and you be respectful, you you be humble, you be polite, you be kind and encouraging, not sharply rebuking. Okay? Now, younger men and women, on the other hand, different story. That They're like brothers and sisters. You think about the picture of brothers and sisters, right? Proverbs 17, 17 uh, says that a friend loves at all times and a brother or sister is born for adversity. Adversity. Um, and one author commenting on this said that we were definitely not created uh, to be alone. Um, we, we, we were created with a deep need um, for, for other blood-bought brothers and sisters to come alongside of us, get in our faces when needed, lovingly encourage us, challenge us in the gospel. This is a, this is a God-given need that we have. And, when done, needs to be done with all purity. There can be no hint of personal selfishness in our hearts when we 
Go to encourage and correct a brother or a sister. And I think this is especially true when encouraging someone of the opposite sex. <clears throat> we should be relating to people of the opposite sex, people, period, not as potential lovers, but as blood-bought <clears throat> brothers and sisters in Christ. So encourage one another like family Second thing that we notice uh, in the text as we make our way through it is that we are called to honor widows like family members. Called to honor widows like family members. Uh, And the remaining portion of our text focuses exclusively on relating to widows. You might make this note. Psalm 68.5 says, God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. Such an amazing passage to read. God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. Our father is a good father, amen? He's a really good father. He did not abandon you when you were orphaned by your sin. He he came and he protected you in the cross of Christ when you were widowed by your old husband, the devil. James 1.27 says that religion that is actually pure and undefiled before God. So you claim to be Christian today, then your Christianity that you claim will actually be pure, authentic, real, and undefiled, not dirty. Your Christianity, your religion will be pure and undefiled before God the Father if you visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Can I just ask all of us real quick, as Christians, if you're a Christian here, Because if you're not a Christian, I'm not banging on you at all. But if you're here and you're a Christian, can I just ask you, this passage is really clear. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And keep oneself unstained from the world. Can I just ask, over the last couple of weeks, in all of our social media posting that Dave was talking about, in all of our conversations with our friends, about all the things that we see going on in the world that we want to change, that we want to see happen, did actually visiting orphans and widows in their affliction, make it on your list of things that you would do that would prove that your faith is actually real? Because this is clear in God's Word. It's as clear as mud. Clearer than mud, actually, because mud ain't clear. I don't even know why we say that. So if you're truly Christian, we will care for orphans and widows like they are our family members. How many orphans and widows do you have close to you that you treat like family? that look like what does that look like for you to do this to honor widows we'll look at verses three through eight back in first timothy chapter five paul says honor widows who are truly widows but if a widow has children or grandchildren let them first show godliness to their own household to make some return to their parents for this is pleasing the sight of god she who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on god and continues in supplication and prayers night and day but she who is self-indulgent dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be live without reproach. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith. That's strong. Denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Paul sure loves saying really hard things, doesn't he? The church should be in the business of honoring widows who are real widows. That's what I get saying. 
actually uses that phrase, truly widows, twice. Verse 3 and 5, then a third time, verse 16. The bottom line here is that if a widow is truly a widow, then the church should honor her like a family member. Now the question is, how do you know if a woman is truly a widow in the biblical sense? You don't have to go very far to look because Paul paints the portrait for us right here, right? Verse 5, he says that a true widow is a woman who is all alone. She's a woman who is all alone, but she has set her hope on God alone. She's known to be a woman of prayer. If she has children, or if she has grandchildren, according to verse 4, she, she actually relates to them uh, in ways that are godly. She, she has worked hard to care for her own parents. She's not neglecting her parents and expecting everyone else to take care of her. She has done everything she can to care for her parents, to return to them the care that was given to her all of those years. And her heart, her heart is set on pleasing God. She's not self-indulgent. According to verse 6, she hasn't denied the faith. She lives above reproach. She hasn't become worse than an unbeliever by neglecting the members of her own household. That's the portrait of a real widow who is actually worthy of honor in the church family. Uh, now when I think of widows um, in the church family uh, who meet this qualification, who, who, who fill out this portrait of the real widow who is worthy of honor, I, I think of two categories, not classes, two categories of uh, real widows. Um, so there are, are widows uh, whose husbands have definitely passed away, and they, they are meeting the biblical godly characteristics that Paul's just laid out. That's one category, woman whose husband has passed away. Um, the second category, again, not class category of description, um, these are single women who are coming out of broken marriages, and I think they meet the characteristic as well. Um, I think there are historical documents um, that point to these truths being true even when this is being written. Um, my position, so therefore I, I believe also that it's the biblical position, and there are some people, I've had conversations recently, there are folks who have an issue with someone saying, I think this is the biblical position. Um, I don't know how else to say it, so I'm just going to say it that way because I think it's the right way to say it. This is the biblical position, I believe. I think this is God's word on this issue. Um, I think we are called to emulate our Father in heaven. If, if He is your Father, then you want to emulate Him to others. And the, one of the ways that we do that is what, by what Paul is telling Timothy here, honoring both of those kinds of widows by seeking to protect them like family members. Um, and then the third thing that we see in this text is that we are called to help widows serve like family members. Okay? Uh, so if you look at verse 9, Look at verse 9. Uh, Paul says, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. Now, I'm not going to focus a lot on age. I just find it interesting that Paul says those things. Um, let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age. That's verse 9. And then verse 11, jump there for a second. Um, he says, refuse to enroll younger widows. So, so when Paul uses the word enroll here, what's he talking about? What does he mean? Um, there are some commentators, some scholars who would take that to mean 
enrollment on the church membership list, of which I thoroughly 100% believe, in my study I see, that they actually did keep membership lists. There are tons of people today who want to argue against formal membership and yada, yada, yada. That's fine. Do your thing. So there are some people that, that would take this to mean do not enroll a widow who is 60 years uh, older, older as a member. So put that in a box. Um, it doesn't make sense to me. There's, a, there's an alternative reading that I think is probably historically more acceptable. Um, but I think actually most scholars actually accept this second position. I think the first on membership is probably less accepted by, by most. Um, the reason it doesn't make sense to me um, is I think to interpret that word under the category of church membership enrollment, um, I think I just don't think that's right because um, physical membership is simply an outward practice of an inward experience that has no age limitation. You don't, you don't age out of church membership any more than you would ever age out of the benefits of baptism. So those two are tightly connected, baptism and membership. So I don't think that that's a proper interpretation of uh, his uh, use of the word enroll. So, um, so I don't think it can mean membership. What does it mean? Um, I think it means enrollment in a vocational ministry service. Um, in other words, being on part of a ministry team that is serving full-time and receiving benefits from the church for doing so. That's I think is probably the more accurate reading of this word enroll. Um, in the historical context, I think that's what you saw taking place. Now, before we go there too much, I want you to remember, every Christian is called to be a minister of the gospel who serves Jesus by serving the church family. We, we get this backwards. We have to think, well, we pay somebody to do the work of the ministry. No, we don't pay someone to do the work of the ministry. We pay someone to train everyone else to do the work of the ministry. Okay? Um, that's clear according to Ephesians 4. Preach sermons on that enough, and there's lots of them online that you can go to that are very good. Every Christian is called to be a minister of the gospel who serves by serving the church family. But you're looking at this text, you look at the history records, it appears that there were a number of widows in Ephesus uh, who were relying on the church to support them in their financial and physical needs. Um, and while the church was supporting them that way, they were then uh, serving on a team that served the practical needs of the church family. So they were in vocational ministry service. Okay? They are on a team. Um, so I think it's very possible and I think very faithful um, for us to read this text and think that there were some widows in Ephesus who probably shouldn't have been enrolled on the list. I think that's what Paul's saying. Like there's some that should not be enrolled on that list. And I think there's also some widows who had not been enrolled on the list yet that should be enrolled on the list. So I think what Paul is doing is just simply laying out a process for helping the widows in Ephesus to either A, join the serving team, or B, be removed or restricted from the serving team um, so that they could then serve in their households. I think that's the overview. Let's look at the text with those thoughts in mind. Test it out. Notice what he says, verses 9 through 15. Let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, 
If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Doesn't that kind of feel like if you go back to the elder qualifications, doesn't that feel like he's just laying out some qualifications in a portrait, right? Same general staccato sense of the way he's working his way through it. Verse 11, but refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. Um, caveat, not that marriage is bad. So just, that's a, it's just a funky rendering of the Greek. Okay? Just pretty literally, that's what it says. Um, but you'd have to look at all sorts of context and verb usage to get down to what does that mean. Okay? Sometimes Greek doesn't translate over to English very, very well. Right, Joe? Because Joe knows Greek. I don't. See, he says. That means yes. <laughs> he also understands. I, I can only speak English. Anyways, refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. And besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry. That's how you know. He's not saying marriage is bad or the desire to marry is bad. He says, I would have younger widows marry. Bear children. Manage their households. Give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. To the heart and soul of Paul when he writes is to ensure that people follow Jesus and don't stray after Satan. We place our trust in Christ, right? Now the overall picture here is that we are called to help widows serve like family members. There are some widows just like there are some people, widows or not, who are either A, qualified or unqualified for a certain area of ministry. Um, and now every, again, every area of ministry is valuable. There's not one that's more important than the other. Um, but there are areas that some people should be restricted from serving in. Either A, gift, mix, personality, character, doesn't fit, not good, don't go there, go over here, right? So this is true of all, all Christians, not just widows. Um, so what Paul does here um, is he deals first with widows that are qualified to be on this serving team. He does that in verses 9 through 10. What does he say? <coughs> first of all, he says they've got to be 60 years of age or older, right? And they've got to be faithful to their husbands. Why the 60? 60 years of age. Uh, I think culturally, uh, my understanding is that culturally, 60 years of age was kind of the time when you would no longer get remarried and you would no longer try to have babies. Um, I don't know if that's true today. Maybe it is. Um, not real experience in that. So I just know that that was kind of the cultural thing there. Um, 60 years of age, probably not going to get remarried, probably not going to have babies. So, so go ahead and enroll a woman of that age, he says. And they've got to be faithful to their husbands. Now the literal translation of that part of the text would have literally said um, that these women needed to be one-man women, um, not multiple men women. Um, doesn't mean that God can't save you out of that if that's where you've been. I'm just simply saying that's the reputation you must have to fit into this category. You are a one-man woman. Uh, this woman's reputation um, has got to be that of a woman who is devoted to good works. Especially, he says, in caring for her own children well and then practicing hospitality in her home. And on top of all that, 
She's got to be the kind of woman who cares for God's people. Uh, that phrase where he says, washing the feet of the saints. You've got to care for and love God's people, not, not hate them. She must also be a woman who is devoted to caring for those who are suffering and in affliction instead of turning a deaf ear and a blind eye to those that are suffering. Like, ah, somebody else will get that. No, this is a woman who is devoted to caring for those who are suffering. So that, that is the description of a widow who should be enrolled on that vocational serving team in the church family. And then what Paul does is he moves on then um, to the widow who should not be enrolled. Verses 11 through 15, what does he say? He says, if, uh, if they're under 60 years of age, we kind of covered that a little bit ago. Um, I think why. So if they're under 60 years of age, um, and I think what Paul's concerns are here uh, for a woman under 60 is that they could stray away from their faith because of their loneliness. I think that's his concern. Loneliness is a powerful thing. Anybody else here know that? Loneliness is very powerful. It can cause people to do crazy things. I think loneliness can be more powerful than death, if you ask me. I think loneliness is probably under the power of So I think that's Paul's concern um, and why he says this. He's not going to enroll someone under 60 because I'd be really concerned that the, the power of loneliness could overcome them, that they could stray away from their faith, that they begin to desire to become remarried and begin to stray away. Not that getting married is straying away, but then in that desire they could stray away. That's his concern. He's also concerned um, that a younger widow, without the responsibility of a husband, without the responsibility of children, could actually become lazy. He says idlers. That's lazy, right? They could become lazy. They become busybodies. They're running from home to home. They're running from phone call to phone call. Gossiping about things that shouldn't even be talked about. And therefore, in doing so, they bring condemnation upon themselves. That's, that's Paul's concern, I think, if I'm reading this right. Um, for those widows, Paul's instruction to them, Paul's encouragement to them, he doesn't just leave it there like, hey, you could be that woman, stand warm. Okay. Gives the warning, but then he also gives his encouragement. His instruction to Timothy is to simply encourage them to find a suitable husband. Find a good man. Go for it. Do that. It's good. Find a suitable husband. Get remarried. Have babies if you're able to. Get busy serving those kids. Get really, uh, busy serving your home. Manage your home rather than letting your home or your family go neglected. Don't let your family go neglected as you lazily run from home to home, stirring up slander, stirring up division among the people of God. That seems to be Paul's encouragement, right? Um, and I think he kind of ends that, caps it off with, hey, some women have already done this. Some women are already straying after Satan in this way, according to verse 15. So I think what Paul is doing here with Timothy is just simply writing these instructions, number one, as a corrected correction, and number two, as a prevention for future issues. But the bottom line here, after all of that understanding, I've told you a lot about what I know about the text from studying. <coughs> the bottom line is that we are to help widows serve like family members in the church and in the home. That's, what I think, the general application. And we have that portrait. Finally, number four, we're almost there. Number four, we're called to care for widows like family members. 
called to care for widows like family members. Paul says, verse 16, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Um, this last verse seems to be fairly simple, right? Uh, the women of the church family should be committed to caring for any widows in their immediate family so that the church can then care for any widows who have no relatives. Oftentimes, it can appear like or comes across like or seems like uh, families will want the church or the pastor maybe or the staff to care for um, relatives rather than doing that hard work yourself. Um, I think the idea here is that if we have relatives that are in need, we should be doing everything we can to help those relatives. Not like bring them to church so the church can help them. Why? Well, he basically says that families who do not care for their own widows, um, they're inadvertently placing an extra burden on the church family. And by doing so, what's happening? Then we're stealing resources from widows in the church family who have no relatives. So by bearing our own burdens in our families, um, we, we release those resources for widows who have no family. We, in effect, become their family. Uh, so the simple instruction here, I think, is just simply that we should do our part in taking care of widows like what? Like the blood-bought family members that they really are. So that's the text. That's the text. Explained it all the way through. What's the application? Right? Um, some areas of application as I wrap this up in conclusion. Um, I believe uh, from this text that God is calling us to encourage one another like family members, right? Like brothers and sisters and moms and dads. Um, and I also believe that God is calling us to honor, to help, and to care for widows like the family members that they really are. Um, so, if you're here and you remember the two categories of widows that I laid out, um, not classes, but categories, um, if you're here, if you've lost your husband either through death or divorce, now, I, I, just, I want you to know, I want you to hear it from me. I believe this is the heart of our church family. You're not alone. Not alone. I think it's as simple as that. Uh, you have a family here that wants to love you, wants to walk with you, and wants to know you. We, we want to do our best to honor you and to, to help you and to care for you. We want to help protect you. We want to emulate our Father with you, if that's you. Um, we also want to see you serving um, in ministry capacities that are appropriate for you. Uh, and, and we want to see you honoring the Lord. We want to see you leading a life that is pleasing to Him. Um, now, if you are a church member here at the well, um, and you have a relative who is a widow, you have a relative who is a widow who is a part of our church family, then what, uh, what we want to encourage you to do is come alongside your family member and, and help her with her needs. Um, don't be lazy in that. Don't be neglectful in that. Help, help this woman to know that she isn't alone. Encourage her with your presence especially. Um, um, practical service is good. Mowing the yard, showing up once a week, getting some food, whatever it may be. Get engaged in that kind of work. Honor this woman in your family, in your life, by protecting her that way. One of the biggest things you can protect anyone from, whether old or young, just letting them know they're not alone and letting your presence practically suggest that. 
Now, you can talk all day long about how someone's not alone, but until you show up on their front door, they're not going to know that they're not alone. That could be something that we could all practice with one another, regardless of what. Then lastly, um, for all of us, final kind of a general application, um, I don't want you to forget that God is the father of the fatherless, and he's the protector of them. The father of fatherless, protector of widows. Your religion will only be pure and undefiled and authentic to the extent that, according to James, you actually care for and protect orphans and widows. Now, the only reason that we do that, the only reason that we engage that kind of work is not because it's like, well, pastor said I have to go do this. The Bible says I have to go do this. No, you got it backwards already. That's called legalism. Um, that, that's an obedience that's not going to please the Lord either. Uh, the reason that we do this is because God, our Father, has done this for us. That sets us free to live the same way that He does. God, our Father, did not leave us orphaned by our sin. He did not leave us widowed by our old husband, the devil, who did leave us. He came and He set us free to be the family of the living God through the shed blood and the broken body and the victorious resurrection. That's how the message of the gospel motivates us and sets us free to obey. We are sons and daughters of the living God. We have the express privilege of living out that reality in the most tangible of ways as we love each other like family members in the midst of a broken and perverse world. Amen? Thank you for your word. Pray, Father, that you would take um, your word now, continue to apply it to our hearts as we close our time together. Pray, Father, that you would help us to uh, turn our attention to you, cross of Christ. Help us to respond appropriately in the way that you have called us to be the family of the living God. In Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.